I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 20, The Mongol Occupation. Thanks for listening in, and it's nice to be back. So, in the last episode, we explored why the Rus lost at the Battle of the Kalka River, and we also covered how that defeat had impacted them upon their collective mindset. Except, we found out that actually it hadn't much, because they carried on in much the same way as they had done before the arrival of the Mongols, with disastrous results because we then saw how Batu Khan, Genghis's grandson, invaded the Rusiskaya Zemla in the winter of 1237, and who, with a little help from one of the greatest commanders of his age, Subutai, had by the year 1240 completely subjugated the Rus. This week, we'll be covering what the Mongols did next. Look at what the Mongol occupation actually meant for the Rus, and then finally check out what was going on in Vladimir, where the Grand Princes still held their titles and a degree of autonomy and power. Now those of you with good memories are probably wondering why there is no mention of a certain Rus noble who made a name for himself that I was going to cover in this episode. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I got a bit bogged down, particularly with the last section, as you'll soon hear and realised that I probably overextended myself. So we'll be covering that particular person next time around. Okay, before we start, I've got a couple of admin items to run through. Firstly, I want to say a massive thanks to Vadim Rebak, Pamela, Ferk, R. Bowser, and Never Forget Will for following the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. It really is appreciated. And secondly, and as you probably noticed, this is the first episode for almost a month, which is simply due to the fact that I took a much-needed break for a couple of weeks up in Northumberland, which, for those of you who don't know much about UK geography, is one of the counties of England that borders Scotland, 
and which contains Hadrian's Wall, some superb medieval castles and a great Indian restaurant. Uh, it's called Zika in Hexham, if you're ever around that way. Anyway, I'm now fully refreshed and I'll be back on the three episodes a month schedule for the foreseeable future. OK, let's do some history of Russia. So after the Mongols had sacked Kiev in 1240, there were two major tasks at the top of their to-do list. The first, and probably the most pressing, involved working out how they were going to administer the Rus lands that they had just conquered. And remember that even before the invasion, these were considered to be Batu's lands, as he had been given the rights to everything west of the Volga, and now he could decide, within reason, how they would be governed. And the second task was to prepare for an invasion of the lands to the west of the Rus. Not an essential undertaking, but something that Batu wanted to do for three reasons. A, to protect what he already had by creating a buffer zone to the west of the Rus lands. B, why not? Conquering the Rus had been relatively easy, so why shouldn't any further incursions be just as successful? And C, well, it's just what the Mongols did best. So, guess which one Batu tackled first? That's right, Gold Star. He sat down with Subutai, who had already sent spies as far west as Austria, and his cousins Kadan and Guyuk, who were Ogaday's sons, who had joined the campaign, and got them to carry out the detailed planning for the march westwards. The administration and governance of the Rus lands could wait, and I'll get into what transpired a bit later on in the episode. But anyway, the approach that Subutai and his cousins came up with was to split the Mongol forces, minus those that were left behind to keep an eye on things in the Rus lands, just in case, into three separate armies. And this is something that someone else would do some 700 years later in 1941, only this time attacking towards the east rather than the west, and I'm sure you all know who I'm talking about. Kadan was to take his troops into Poland on the northernmost route. Batu and Subutai were to take the middle path into Hungary, and Guyuk was to take his army along a southerly route into modern-day Romania and Transylvania. Now I think if I'd have been Batu, I would have stayed behind in Kiev or Vladimir just to keep an eye on things, whilst the others headed west for further glory and conquest. That seems a much more sensible and strategic approach. But then I guess I wouldn't have made, been much of a Mongol commander or strategist, because each of the armies met with either little opposition or won famous victories, and there are no reports of any trouble breaking out in the Rus lands. So the northernmost tip of this three-pronged advance, Kadan's army, swept into Poland, and in early April 1241, at the Battle of Lenica, or Lignitz, which is modern-day Legnica in Poland, they defeated an army that is said to have included heavily armoured Teutonic knights, and dying in the battle was the most powerful of the Polish dukes, Henrik or Henry II. The southern prong, under Guyuk, advanced into Romania and Transylvania via Halic, where they mopped up the last vestiges of Rus resistance, and then they crossed the Carpathian Mountains, winning a series of smaller battles. 
and then the middle prong under Subutite and Batu met no resistance. And then a week later, all three armies reunited on the Hungarian plain and there they inflicted a massive defeat on the forces of King Bila IV of Hungary at the Battle of Mohi. The combined Mongol armies then spent several months pillaging throughout the eastern Hungarian lands. They then swept across the western plains, down into the Balkans, across into Bohemia and Moravia, and then started moving towards the gates of Vienna, which, when you think about it, is pretty ruddy impressive. But then, miracle of miracles, in March 1242, the advance suddenly stopped dead in its tracks, as the Mongol princes, against Subutai's sage advice, I might add, turned around and started the long trek back to Mongolia, because news had reached them that the great Khan, Ogadai, had died and a new leader needed to be chosen. But maybe Ogaday's death at the age of 56, after a bout of binge drinking during a hunting trip, so much for the one drink a day then, and therefore the need for a great cruelty or council, papered over some cracks that were starting to appear as the up to now victorious Mongol armies had started to suffer a series of defeats, first in Hungary, then in the Balkans, and finally in Bulgaria. Plus, guerrilla-type behind-the-line skirmishing had also broken out throughout the region. And whilst none of these events on their own were perhaps significantly damaging to the Mongols' feelings of invincibility, collectively, they were starting to take their toll. And maybe it was these defeats that were the real reason, because according to Rashid al-Din, an Arabic historian, the Mongols started their retreat before the news about Ogadeh's demise had reached them. And I think, if that's true, that Batu had realised that he'd finally bitten off more than he could chew. Whatever, whatever the reasons, Guyuk, Batu and the others started the long ride back east, but matters related to the succession were not going to go to plan, as we'll discover, but in next week's episode. So we're going to leave the Mongols there and take a peek at what was going on in the Rus lands. Had the various princes managed to regroup and start fighting back against their invaders to win back their lands, either engaging them in pitched battles or using the guerrilla tactics that had started to reap rewards further west? Well, in a nutshell, no, they didn't. So let's look at why, and also at what life was like for the Rus under the Mongol or Tatar yoke. And at the macro level, and as we have seen, the armies and cities of the various Rus princedoms had been decimated and terrorised, and there is no mention in the chronicles of any kind of resistance movement coming to the fore. And that wasn't just a result of the terrorisation, because whilst the Mongols had obviously conquered the Rus lands, what that meant in practice was, to a degree, business as normal, or slightly better than normal. The Rus princes, nominally, and the Orthodox Christian religion were left in place. Trade, which had for decades been in the doldrums, started to increase, this time along routes from east to west rather than from north to south. The Mongol postal or courier system was introduced. The Mongol language and style of clothing started to leave its imprint. And most importantly, 
political stability rather than inter-prince squabbling became the norm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. But there was no getting away from the fact that the Mongols were in control, even though that control was exercised with a soft touch mainly because the Khans just didn't have the resources to directly control all of their latest conquests. And as we've seen before, that just wasn't their preferred modus operandi. And so they did their usual thing. They delegated a large degree of autonomy to the Rus princes, but under two conditions. First, the Rus had to behave themselves and keep their houses in order. And second, they had to collect Mongol-imposed taxes and tribute and send it all east. So you could say that the Rus aristocracy collaborated with their new overlords, a bit like the puppet administration set up in Vichy, France in 1940 and in Eastern Europe after the Second World War. Maybe that sounds a bit stark, but I think it reflects the reality. No one was going to stand up to the Mongols. The princes kept their heads down, collected the Khan's taxes, travelled east whenever summoned to swear allegiance to him, and to be honest, I don't really blame them. So let's look at an example which offers us a glimpse or microcosm of what was going on. And here we meet Prince Danilo. He's the grandson of Mstislav of Kiev who died at the Kalka River and he's the Prince of Halic which is the princedom down in the far southwest of the Rusiskaya Zemla. Now Danilo or Daniel as he's known in the west had been part of a mini-alliance of Rus princes which had attempted to fight off the Mongols when they were sacking Kiev in 1240. His lands in Halic escaped the devastation of the main Mongol invasion, but suffered the inevitable when Guyuk's southern army marched through the territory to get to Romania and Transylvania back in the winter of 1241. And after this, Danilo, like many of his peers, accepted the inevitable, kept his head down, and focused on stability and economic growth. During his rule, German, Polish and Rus merchants and artisans were invited into Halic, and members of the Armenian and Jewish communities established themselves in the province's towns and cities. He founded the towns of Lviv and Kolm, fortified many others, and appointed honest officials to protect the peasantry from exploitation. But ironically, it was his ability to run his lands honestly and efficiently that drew him to the attention of the Mongols and in 1246 he was summoned to the capital of the Golden Horde at Sarai on the Volga River 
and was forced to accept Mongol overlordship in front of everyone there. And just as an aside, that's our first mention of the Golden Horde, which was the Mongol name for the lands that Batu had inherited and conquered, and that derives from the yellow or golden colour of the Mongol tents. Anyway, back on track. According to the Ukrainian historian Orest Subetny, when he arrived, Daniel was handed a cup of kumis, or fermented mare's milk, by the Mongol Khan Batu, and told to get used to it, as you are one of ours now. Which I guess leaves no room for discussion. However, other sources record the exchange slightly differently. At a banquet, Batu asked Danilo if he drank kumis like the Mongols, and Daniel answered, Until now, I did not, but now I do as you command, and I will drink it. Which is a bloody good answer. To which Batu replied, You are now one of ours. And then, since Daniel was more used to it, he ordered that he be given a glass of wine. Which, I guess, was kind of him. So, Danilo, or Daniel, like many others, knew exactly where he stood, but he also appreciated that the Mongols were hundreds of miles away, and that if he kept keeping his nose clean and collected his taxes, he could subtly shape his foreign policy to point westwards. And to do this, he established cordial relations with Poland, Hungary and Lithuania. So I've concentrated on the impact of the occupation upon the Rus nobility, and the church, as mentioned previously, was left alone. But what about the vast mass of the population, the farmers, tradespeople, artisans, freedmen and slaves? Well, nothing appears to have been recorded, but no doubt they tried to get on with their lives as best as they could. And to be honest, probably noticed very little difference. It was a case of the same old crap, but different bosses. Meanwhile, up to the north in Vladimir, the job of trying to resurrect that devastated princedom after Grand Prince Yuri's death at the Sit River in 1238, remember that? Fell to Yuri's brothers, Yaroslav and Sviatoslav, and then in turn to Yaroslav's son, sons, Mikhail and Andrei. And these four reigns, well, five actually, as Sviatoslav had two bites of the cherry, well, he did in his mind anyway, only encompassed 14 years. So let's take a quick look at some of the key events. Yaroslav, who'd been looking after things in Novgorod for Yuri, and who mainly spent his time there fighting the Finns, Lithuanians and Teutonic Knights, was crowned as Grand Prince of Vladimir in the summer of 1238. During the early part of his reign, he gradually started to restore the cities of Vladimir Suzdal that had been damaged or destroyed by the Mongol ravages and fires. In 1243, he was summoned by Batu Khan to his capital Sarai, and after a lengthy conference, he returned to Vladimir with his title ratified. Two years later, he was again summoned to the east, to the Mongol capital of Karakorum, this time by Guyuk, Ogadai's son, who had recently been made the Great Khan. Now we don't know the reason for this visit, or what was discussed, but according to the sources, whilst he was there, he was poisoned, supposedly by the Great Khan's mother, Turigena. But frustratingly, we're not told what her motive was, 
Anyway, Yaroslav died a week after he'd been allowed to return home, in the September of 1246. His brother Sviatoslav III's reign in Vladimir was short and mainly uneventful. In 1248, his nephew and another of Yaroslav's sons, Mikhail, seized the city of Vladimir, but he died on a campaign against the Lithuanians and Sviatoslav was back in charge. Or that's what he thought. Because unbeknown to him, another one of Yaroslav's sons, Andrei, had ridden eastwards to Karakorum when his father had died, and he obtained permission from the Khan to take over as Grand Prince. So between 1248 and 1252, we've got a bit of a muddle on our hands, and no one was quite sure who was in charge, and probably the Mongols weren't bothered as long as the taxes and tribute kept on flowing east. Things got a bit simpler though in 1252. Sviatoslav III died, leaving Andrei as the only claimant or incumbent. But then he got involved in a spat with another one of his brothers, Alexander, who I've not previously mentioned, but who will feature heavily in the next episode. Again, according to the sources, Alexander, who was based in Novgorod, was hacked off with Andrei, who he accused of sending his, Alexander's portion of tribute to the Khans, as if it were Andrei's. Fuming, but probably a little concerned at what might happen if the Mongols suspected him of withholding his portion of the cash, Alexander went east and reported what had happened to the Khan, who immediately sent a force to Vladimir to punish Andrei. No one's quite sure what happens, but there seems to have been a skirmish, and Andrei managed to escape. He first tried seeking refuge in Novgorod, but the citizens there, sensibly, wanted nothing to do with him, and so he hot-footed it first to Estonia, before finally ending up somewhere in Sweden. So after all that shenanigans, let's just pause and take stock. The Mongols are in charge, but they exercise power through the various princes who send taxes and tribute to the Khans. They continue their infighting, but they look to the West for trade opportunities and alliances. However, the Poles, Hungarians, Finns, Lithuanians and the Teutonic Knights, sensing the weakened Rus' position and seemingly not seeing the Mongols as a continuing threat, start to make incursions into the western fringes of the Rusiskaya Zemla. The Grand Princes of Vladimir, and in 1252, after his brother's escape, Alexander in the hot seat, are still nominally the preeminent Rus' players, but their time in the sun is slowly coming to an end. Okay, let's leave things there, as that's probably enough information for the time being. Next time, we'll finally be covering the life and times of Alexander, who goes on to make a name for himself, although not in the way that you probably think he did, and I'm sure I've said that before somewhere along the line. We'll also be taking a look at the princedom of Novgorod and casting a glance eastward at what's going on with the Mongols. Anyway, until next time, stay safe, look after yourselves. I'll see you all soon.